Hello and welcome to the Bunker USA. I'm Chris Jones. In August 2017, Charlottesville, a small city in Virginia, became synonymous with something terrible. The horrific violence brought out by a white supremacist rally called Unite the Right shocked the world, as images spread of baton-wielding, armor-carrying racist groups. There were some of the very worst at the rally, hundreds of thugs, all brought together because of the planned removal of a Confederate monument. Or was it more than that? Was this a carefully planned movement to gain a mass of media attention that might sympathise with their cause? My guest today is Aniko Bodrakozzi, Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and author of Making Hashtag Charlottesville. She was there as a counter-protester and has studied the similarities between this media event and others from the civil rights movement. Aniko, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Well, considering that my town of Charlottesville will be recognizing the sixth anniversary of the Unite the Right mayhem, these days are always difficult for this town. Yeah, mayhem is the word you used to describe that. And that's certainly something that was seen in 2017 in Charlottesville. And you saw that for yourself. You, As I say, you were there as a, as a counter-processor. Just for the listeners to set this scene a little bit more, could you describe what it is that you saw and, 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 and what you felt whilst you were there? Yeah, this was basically a, a two-day assault on our community and more largely on the nation. What I saw was the second day, which was the actual Unite the Right rally in downtown Charlottesville. But I saw contingents of neo-Nazis march right past my synagogue. And that's a memory I will never get out of my head. And then afterwards, it felt right for me and some of my fellow congregants to go out and counter-protest, which is what many people in Charlottesville did, and many, of course, who also came to Charlottesville to stand up against the Unite the Right neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And the violence that day is, you know, are some of the images that uh, six years later are still kind of part of the American and kind of global memory of, of those awful days. You kind of touched on it a little bit there, but I just wanted to go into a little bit more detail as to, to why you and and also thousands of others felt it necessary to, to, to be there uh, to counter protest. Yeah, I mean, this was an issue that debates in Charlottesville all summer long went on about how should local residents, how should non-local residents who were concerned about the, the sort of the upsurge of political energy around far-right extremist behavior and movements and activity, right? How should we respond to this? City politicians, administrators at my university, the University of Virginia, were all saying, don't take the bait, don't don't confront them, ignore them, kind of ignore them and they'll go away. And anti-racist and anti-fascist activists in Charlottesville and in other places said, no, no, you can't ignore these people. You have to stand up to them. 
it became clear to me that both as a person concerned about democracy, concerned about the rise of neo-fascism and white supremacy and all the rest of it, and someone who studies the civil rights movement, I couldn't stay home or hide in the basement. So I did what at least a thousand other people did that day, which was to go out and counter-protest. Most of us did that non-violently. There were some groups of Antifa cells who were more confrontational, and those are a lot of the images that we've seen, but it felt like that's what we had to do. And so we did. That sounds absolutely terrifying, and and I can completely understand why this would stick in your memory and inspire, I guess, you inspire you to, to, to write the book. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit now. You use the hashtag in, in the title to kind of draw attention to the role that social media had. How big of an impact did social media have when it came to Charlottesville, not just for counter-protesters, but for the white supremacists as well? Yeah, until the Unite the Right rally, the alt-right as a phenomenon was largely a social media phenomenon. Younger, disaffected young men tended to congregate in these social media spaces, often spaces originally connected with online gaming. So these online spaces were becoming areas that far-right groups were starting to kind of organize mostly disaffected young white guys into this burgeoning movement and often using like really edgy memes. So this cartoon character, Peppy the Frog, these far right groups started to appropriate this cartoon character and connected him with neo-Nazi imagery. And, you know, those started to flood social media spaces. And in 2015, 2016, it's, you know, what what is this? You know, is this just young guys being edgy and trying to get a rise out of, you know, out of liberals? Or is this something else? So a lot of the the initial energy around the alt-right is getting fomented in these online spaces and with the production of these edgy memes that are trafficking in particularly Nazi iconography. What made the Unite the Right rally so significant is that this was the first attempt by what was really a kind of disconnected and um, not particularly unified group of these far-right actors and groupings to become a movement in real space and in the streets So what happened in Charlottesville was supposed to be the movement from being mostly online to being a movement in the real world. 
so it, I guess it almost became a manifestation of, of what was being seen online in the streets. Uh, you mentioned edgy memes. Now, obviously, edgy memes and hashtags didn't exist back in the 1960s, which is an era you have studied. But you found similarities between the events in the civil rights era and uh, in, in Charlottesville, especially when it comes to getting media attention. You used the phrase reverse mirror image in the book to describe how white supremacists used certain tactics. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? This is what I found so rad, you know, was rattling to me even during the summer of 2017 as I was seeing what was unfolding. And then in the aftermath, as I started studying it more, the alt-right was using many of the same movement tactics that the civil rights movement, particularly Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Mm. Conference, the tactics that they perfected in the 1960s and which other social change movements and rights movements in the aftermath have also utilized. The key one with the civil rights movement, and I use two key moments in the civil rights struggle, uh, the Birmingham campaign of 1963 around protesting Jim Crow segregation and the campaign in Selma, Alabama in 1965 around uh, voting rights. What the civil rights movement did was to focus on a particular town and attempt to stage a confrontational drama with the forces of white supremacy and segregation. Civil rights movement, of course, and the King-based civil rights movement was philosophically and tactically nonviolent. But they needed the violence of white supremacists, and they needed to choreograph confrontations and demonstrations that would become violent, where white supremacists and racists would behave violently. And why was that? They needed that because that's what brings the media, right? That's what brings... The TV news cameras, the photojournalists. So they needed white supremacists to behave violently to get national media attention, to, you know, shock the nation and eventually lead to legislation at the federal level, which, of course, as we know, happened in, in relatively short order with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act. What the alt right wanted to do was basically the same thing, but in this, yeah, flip the script kind of way. The alt-right knew that Charlottesville had a strong community of anti-racist, anti-fascist who were organized and who would stand up against them. And the alt-right came to Charlottesville really not to protest the taking down of Confederate statues, but to create a violent confrontation. Now, the reason this is a flip the script is because the alt-right were, of course, going to be violent. 
that's you know my argument and i'm not the only one who who would say this is white supremacy mm. is inherently violent so they wanted to use charlottesville as a stage set very much like king wanted to use Birmingham and then Selma as a stage set to garner a lot of media attention to build the movement. The alt-right comes to Charlottesville, wants to build a movement, but it's a movement to basically destroy everything that the civil rights era was able to successfully build as far as racial justice and equality. And so that's what I found so devious about what the alt-right wanted to do, because they very clearly chose Charlottesville because of the situation that they knew that they would encounter. Yeah, there's there's three words that you used there that really interested me was stage, choreograph and, and set. Um, and I think sometimes when we look back on these moments in history, Selma, Birmingham, and, and now Charlottesville, as you mentioned, sometimes we tend to think that they were spontaneous. And, and that just is never uh, really the truth. There's something else that you say in the book twice that really, really interests me, mentioning Selma, Birmingham, and Charlottesville. And you said that all three were major media events that communicated something about American racism. What do you think the incident in, in Charlottesville communicated? Well, of course, you can't separate what happened in Charlottesville from the Trump presidency. One reason that the alt-right felt so energized is because they thought they had an ally in the White House, which, of course, yep. as we know, they they did from the way that Trump responded on three different occasions to what had happened in Charlottesville. What the events in Charlottesville indicated was that the gains of the civil rights era, second wave feminism, gay rights movement, I mean, all of these rights movements coming out of the 1960s and all the gains that we associate with those rights movements, that they, those gains are incredibly fragile. What happened in Charlottesville is this crystallizing moment of just how fragile all of those rights gains are and fundamentally how fragile democracy is. If Birmingham and Selma were kind of harbingers to the opening up of democratic access and the opening up of increased equality, in the United States, what Charlottesville was a harbinger of is the potential closing down of all of that and the fundamental need to kind of stand up and fight against it. I want to come back to Trump later on and, and being an ally in the White House, as you put it, um, and just talk a little bit about how the media covered Charlottesville and some comparisons that you were able to draw from uh, the civil rights era. What about the media has changed in that period of time? Because obviously there are a lot more outlets now, uh, so it's, it's a lot harder to know what to trust. And there were cameras upon cameras at this event. I think you say in the book that CNN were broadcasting this for a week straight with very little other other stories. How dangerous is it 
that you have so many outlets now compared to back in the 1960s. And did we see a sharp polarization around how this was covered by media outlets based on their political affiliation? It's easy to say, oh, well, the media was simpler in the 1960s or less polarized in the 1960s. Um, At the national level, that's clearly the case in the 1960s. And the civil rights movement used national media to its advantage. So you have three TV networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, all pursuing kind of middle of the road, trying to be objective, but clearly the reporters and producers were largely on the side of the civil rights movement. But what we tend to forget is that, certainly in the South, the major newspapers were all segregationists. They were white supremacist newspapers. I think what's significant about our era, and the reason that I call what happened in Charlottesville a media event, is because, I mean, as you point out, CNN kind of, you know, provide wall-to-wall coverage about what happened in Charlottesville for weeks afterwards. So what made Charlottesville a media event is it was all any media events were focused on, both traditional or what we sometimes call sometimes call legacy media um, and new media. So the trending of hashtag Charlottesville you know, it becomes the top trending hashtag on Twitter. So in some ways, what what's so significant about what happened in Charlottesville, and again, January 6th is another moment where that becomes clearly, you know, another media event that all media outlets, traditional social media are consumed with talking about trying to make sense of this, you know, particular phenomenon. Let's come back to Trump then, because he played a a huge part in how this unfolded, really, and, and what happened historically after that. He failed I think is 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 the right word to use to to condemn the white supremacists in Charlottesville. How much of a part do you think that that, that really did play in the build up to January sixth? You write that um, curating media events are also a good way to recruit. So uh, combining that with Trump's words, did that add to the scenes that we saw at the Capitol? Clearly, uh, I think since his time in the White House. Trump has obviously more clearly embraced white nationalism, white supremacy. These people are part of his base. Now, it's not all of the Trumpist base, but they are a clear part of his base, and they were in 2017, and Trump knew that, which is one reason that he couldn't except for one brief moment, unequivocally condemn what happened um, in Charlottesville. I mean, he he gave three different statements 
about what happened in Charlottesville. An initial one where, again, he's equivocating, they're good people on both sides. Then he gets a massive amount of condemnation, including by other high-profile Republican leaders. Then he comes back and gives a prepared speech where he never goes, you know, off script. And then he comes back a third time and basically starts blaming everything on what he refers to as the alt-left, a term that doesn't exist, and really starts signaling that he's much more concerned about the left, Antifa and uh, social media warriors. And then, of course, once we get to the 2020 presidential election and the disastrous presidential debate between Trump and Biden, when Trump is asked about the Proud Boys. Uh, Now, Proud Boys marched in Charlottesville, and Trump very famously says to the Proud Boys, uh, stand back and stand by. But these people are, and those political positions are clearly a significant part of the Trump movement. Just to kind of round us off, I've got two more questions for you. Um, and I want to bring it back to Charlottesville. A former colleague of mine was was there earlier in the week speaking to, to people who, who were there like yourself. And what they told him is that they haven't healed from what happened in, in 2017. The memory still lingers uh, and they're in, in pain. They also have serious concerns about the run-up to the 2024 election and what might happen there. How much of a role do you think the media has to play here in making sure that something like Charlottesville doesn't happen again? Do they have a really key part in this? Yeah. I mean, part of the problem with the way that the media covered the alt-right as it was developing in 2015 and 2016 and into 2017 is the media tended to treat this movement as a kind of normal manifestation of conservative right-wing politics and not treating it for what it is, which is contemporary fascism. And so part of the problem is figures like uh, Richard Spencer, who was one of the organizers of the Unite the Right, and certainly he he coined the term alt-right, was treated as a legitimate political actor. I think coming out of the... Unite the Right rally, media, certainly local Charlottesville media, which is what I looked at in my book, it kind of recognized, oh, no, (laughs) we really did need to provide more context and explanation about who these people are. Um, And I think coming into uh, the 2024 presidential election, with Trump, you know, saddled with three, four indictments um, that all, most of which go to, you know, a clear undermining of, of democracy in this country. To treat a figure like this and 
his movement as kind of normal, conservative, right-leaning American politics is, I think, fundamentally problematical. There are times when you cannot normalize certain political actors, even if they seem to have a lot of political power. And that's what I would say about covering Trump and Trumpism. Uh, This is not a normal political actor. This is contemporary fascism. And and just briefly, just to to, to finish off, you said that this isn't a book that you ever wanted to write. And uh, as you've described, this isn't anything that you ever wanted to happen in Charlottesville or, you know, anywhere else in the US for that matter. You set yourself a goal of trying to understand what happened and why um, and spent four years doing that. Just very briefly, is it clear to you now why this happened? The story isn't over yet uh, because we are still in a struggle against empowered white supremacy. We're in a struggle against neo-fascism, all of which was on the streets in Charlottesville six years ago. What happened in Charlottesville was a kind of alarm bell about, you know, a movement in uh, the United States about, again, reversing all the gains of the civil rights and post-civil rights era, but something fundamentally new, which is fascism. It's clear to me what happened with the Unite the Right, what it was portending, and we're still in the middle of it. 50 years from now, I'm hoping historians will look back and say, okay, this was a struggle and we were able to push back against fascism in the United States. We don't know that yet. The struggle is ongoing. Yeah. And as the old saying goes, only time will tell. Um, Aniko, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Chris. Listeners, we're always keen to know what you think. And if you have any thoughts on today's episode, feel free to get in touch with us. And if you enjoyed listening to this, why not back us on Patreon, where you can chuck us a couple quid a month to help keep conversations like this on the agenda. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. Bunker USA was written and presented by Chris Jones. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.